7 through 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Begin in verse 7. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this. That what we are in word by letters when absence, such persons we are also indeed when present. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God has apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. For you're not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. So as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. He who boasts is to boast in the Lord, for it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Father, help us to hear these words. Father, help us to look longingly and understand the urgency of our day as Paul fought a battle in the urgency of his day. Father, let us understand that the enemy is alive and well and in some cases thriving. And yet, Father, may your people called by your name be bold enough to be discerning and confront that that which is in error. To your praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen. This section, if you're around topical teaching, you will never hear this section taught. Uh, It is not a section that jumps out and has a lot of anything in it. But when you look at it in the flow of 2 Corinthians and in 1 Corinthians, you see that it is a very powerful text and it's a very important text. It was at the time of the writing of the Apostle Paul. I believe it is more so now because it deals... A true man of God is known by. For whatever reason today, we don't acknowledge that. Uh, And yet, I was looking at Sunday school this morning, and we were warned by Jesus that Satan will sow tares in among the wheat. And, and, And if you look at the authors of the New Testament, just about every one of them wants to warn us about false teaching and false leaders. And, and yet we just kind of skipped the dude down the road and ah, that won't happen to us. And he said goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And he says, ravenous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock and may arise from even among you. 
And then if you look at 1 Timothy, he had left Timothy in Ephesus to straighten out the things that had been warned about. The true messenger of Christ, this is missed, this text is missed because there's so much topical teaching going on. Knowing and hearing the true shepherd. And, and, I, and I watch a lot of people who, and I'll deal with this next week, on the true shepherd's disdain for fleshly methods. And, you know, Paul warned the Thessalonians, do not despise prophetic utterances. Okay, but test it. And, and all that is, is publicly proclaiming. And it'd be through the foolishness of preaching that I will reach lost. Knowing and hearing the true shepherd, because if I'm knowing and I'm hearing him, then I will know where the wolves are. And and, and it was a challenge in the time of the Apostle Paul. Uh, it is a challenge today. It was a problem in the time of the Apostle Paul. And he tells Timothy in his last letter that as we come to the conclusion of the age, men will not hear sound words. They will have a form of godliness and deny the power. Well, brothers and sisters, we and I ball deep in that right now. We're in trouble. <laughs> and, and yet we want our ears tickled. You know, I had a bad week, preacher. Make me feel better. It's uh, discernment. Okay, and I, I, it's like I said, I, I think it's more important today than ever because um, it, it's more difficult today than it was at the time of Paul. Um, Paul had no New Testament to compare, so it wasn't like you could hold it up, but you could look at the Apostle Paul's life and you said, well, look at that. I mean, even the unbelievers understood it. All right, and, and it was a drastic, drastic change. Today, sadly, we have the New Testament, but very few people read it. And, and, and then what I watch is they're not even willing to look at the evidence that is right in front of them, the, the man's life. I also look at media and books today. The false have a, a, a massive platform because they only have to say something and they get this massive following. And, and it's, it's kind of, you know, if, if, if they smile real big and they dress real nice and they've got to be of God because he's got his own private jet. Okay, you know, nobody else would just have that. And, and, I, and, I, and, and we look at it based on numbers. Uh, people, uh, people will say it's not based on numbers. And yet everything they do is for what? Numbers. And you just sit there and scratch your head and, and don't you see this? Do you understand that Jesus didn't have the ability to attract numbers unless he was doing miracles? But when he brought hard teaching, what happened? At his crucifixion, where was all of his disciples? vanished. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? Uh, Jeremiah, what a preacher. He had a great following. Okay, crickets. Uh, but you, we always look at this and I think, you know, the, the men of God who are true shepherds are going to bring you the hard things because it's necessary. 
I look at the platform that the false have today, and, and, and it's a tragedy because I remember that, um, not get behind me, what is it? Left behind. I remember when that series was coming out, when the next new book would come out, they would line up in front of stores to get that. And, and I kept, you know it's fiction? Okay, I'm, I'm, now listen, I didn't read it. Okay, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. But when you have a Christian come up and say, did you know that the Antichrist is coming out of the UN? I'm sitting there going, what? <laughs> um, but you see what I'm trying to get at? Uh, you, and I sat there and I thought, people are lining up for a fictional book. Okay? Characters that, are we going to start looking for these men and women's names? And then we'll know. It was, it was almost crazy. How do we protect ourselves? How do we protect the church? How do we protect the unsaved? The unsaved. Because they're all out there. And I mean, these guys are on TV. If you lay your hand on the TV screen, Jesus will save you. What did we do before that? And I, I see this stuff and everybody goes, that's powerful. And I'm like, wait a minute. Do we not have any discernment? Why? Because they will come in and not spare the flock. They will come in as ravenous wolves. They will come in teaching lies. Paul told us, do not despise preaching. Why? That's where you will be strengthened. And examine it all carefully. Hold fast to that that is good, he told the Thessalonians. And if you read the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, you stand in awe of this church. This is an amazing church. But then in chapter 4, he says, but I want you to excel more. And I'm saying, I go, gosh, I'd give anything for the first three chapters. Jesus warned in Matthew 7 there would be wolves. Paul warned the elders of Ephesus that even from among the leadership there would be wolves. He told Timothy to guard the truth. Be aware that in the latter days there will be the doctrine of demons and there will be seducing spirits and they will be brought in by lying teachers. And they will be like gang green. It will even shipwreck the faith of some. It's time for us, you and I, to examine carefully and it is terrible in our time. I watch what is being cloaked in the name of Christianity is tragic and many do not follow it and and you know what we also have this thing it's an interesting concept it's called an attitude of tolerance okay if you question anyone's spirituality you are bringing disunity you are being critical you are a Pharisee, you are self-righteous. They will call you all the names that you can think of and you stand. I, I, I was preaching out east a couple of weeks ago and I had a young man jump up after the message and just get in my face. was using profanity and um, calling me a false teacher and, and all of this other stuff. And I was just sort of like, wow. 
you know, and uh, I didn't, he didn't stick around long enough for me to ask him, are you saved? <laughs> so, because I, I get into trouble for that. There are people who come to me and you listen to their song and dance and somewhere along there, all of a sudden I realize, are you saved? And they always have the same, well, I said a prayer. Well, good. Can you tell me exactly in the Bible where it says, say this prayer and you'll be saved? Because I've got to be honest with you, I haven't found that. And anyway, this kid copped an attitude and I tried to get him to sit with me and reason from the scriptures and uh, he had no part of it. And he accused me of being divisive and a, and a false Christ. And I, well, I've been called a lot worse and, uh, and I'm not done. If I look at this letter to the Corinthians, the first nine chapters is to the congregation of what I call the wheat. Chapter 10 through 13 is to the false. Those who are bringing the accusations in Corinth against the Apostle Paul. We see that tragedy. First Corinthians, the chaos that was in that church. Paul went to the church the second visit. And when he got there, they accused him of evil in front of the congregation during a worship service. And no one in the church stood up to defend the Apostle Paul. So he went back to Ephesus. And when he got back to Ephesus, he wrote a letter that is called the severe letter. We do not have that letter. Titus took it back. What was common in that time is that I'd bring this letter in, I'd stand at the pulpit, and I would read it to the congregation. That had to have been a dandy. Because he wrote it to bring them to repentance of their rebellion. And it worked. Okay, then he writes 2 Corinthians, telling them that he will come back the third time, prepare the offering for Jerusalem. And when I come back, we will deal once and for all for those who have not repented of this rebellion. This section identifies the true teachers. These are the guys you can hang your hat on. These are the ones that are sent by God. These are the one who speaks for Christ. And I will contrast them to the false. Verses 7 through 18. Measure the men. We all need to know this. And we all need to know these principles. I've got it as six points. His relationship to Christ. His impact on the church. His compassion for people. His disdain for fleshly methods. His integrity and his humility. Those are all very, very visible. We need to protect ourselves from the subtleties that our enemy uses, the influence that the false give. I look at this congregation in Corinth that was founded by the Apostle Paul. He was there for two years, day in and day out, from house to house, teaching and training and raising up. And yet, when he left, someone came in, sowed a seed of doubt. That doubt bloomed and you have what is the chaos of 1 Corinthians. Why? The Apostle Paul understood that the truth of God was at stake. The glory of God is at stake. Do we recognize a true man of God? Because see, it's not up to me, guys. You need to. You need to be able to know, is this guy legit? Is he a true teacher? Is this man sent... By the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is asking Corinth and he's asking us to make sound judgments. Let's look at a text. 
We're going to review. We're going to, we're moving into point three, but we'll review quickly. Verse seven, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. Okay. Outward there can either be translated indicative or imperative. The New American Standard translates it indicative. I believe it should be imperative because everywhere else in the New Testament in Paul's writings, it's imperative. Okay. That moves it from a suggestion to a command. And he's basically saying it to use my vernacular, look right under your nose. Okay? You are looking outwardly. You need to look under your nose. Look at what is plain to see. Why are you confused about the false when this should be plain to you? Why are you confused about Paul's authority? Why are you confused about Paul's commissioning? When you have the evidence of two years of service with Paul. You saw what he's done. You've seen him preach with power. Look at what is right in front of your face. Look at what is apparent. I've had some battles of my own in my past years. And my only defense is the same. Compare the fruit. Those are my accusers. Compare them to the fruit of me. What God has done through me. That's all I ask. Okay? It's not that I'm Paul, but you do get to a point where you have to say, what does the evidence say? You know, I think about this congregation raising the amount of money that we did in six months to reach all of these kids in Russia. And let me tell you something. You know what is really cool about that? No one in this church can take credit for it. We're not big enough. If we were a mega church, then you say, well, that's a piece of cake. But I look at it and I know that in this congregation, it was sacrificial giving week in and week out that happened that. And the only way that happens is when God moves on the heart of men and women to say, I will do without a Starbucks and I will add to the kitty for them kids. Uh, you guys, some of you were here last week when SGA was here. You heard the testimonies. They stand in all of us. And I said, no, it's just Macedonia. We're poor. We don't have anything going for us. I did make fun. I, I saw Bob Provost this week. And I told him, I said, you know, next year, we're just going to buy lotto tickets and give them to you. And he, 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 he didn't think that was funny. But <laughs> what can I say? Their relationship with Christ. We are true. Paul was not. That's what they were saying. We are of Christ. Paul was not. Look what he says. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ. Okay, he used the singular there, the singular noun. Why? Because there's probably a spokesman for the group or the ringleader, if you want to call it. Okay, and he is confident in himself. Now, remember what he said. I want you to look right in front of your face. Look at right before your eyes. Now, this guy says he is true and that I am not. He says, but what does the evidence say? If he's confident in himself, look what he says. Let him consider this again within himself. What does that mean? Look at the evidence. He says he is of Christ. All right. Look at the evidence in my life. And then the Apostle Paul says that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Why? We have evidence. I don't have to make the statement. We have the evidence, the Apostle Paul is saying. You look at the chaos that is in Corinth in the first letter. And you have to ask yourself, what is the evidence? I mean, you can sit and tell me you're of Christ, but Paul said that the worship service, if lost people walked in there, he would think you were crazy. 
That's not really that good of a church service if you think about it. They have no history. When you see false, there is no history. They're new in town. They may have letters of commendation as these. I was sent by such and such. Or I graduated from such and such. But you don't see a history there. They said Paul wasn't. They believed that they had a unique relationship with Christ. They had a mystical knowledge with Christ. They had a higher knowledge. They, Paul was such a lesser person. That's what they do. They still do it today, brothers and sisters. Look at what I've got. They believed they were way above Paul. And the only reason that they believed that is because it was in their confidence. What was the evidence, Paul says? They were confident in themselves? If they can conclude that they are of Christ, then the evidence of what Paul's ministry was should be what? Sure. I mean, Paul had evidence. He had a guy named Ananias in Damascus who brought his vision back. He had Barnabas who took him to the Jerusalem council. The Jerusalem council affirmed him. That was the original disciples of Christ, said Paul was of him. The lost were furious with the apostle Paul. And the thing is, in the suffering and the condemnation and the pain that had surrounded Paul's entire ministry, he never stopped, nor did he shut up. They could put him in jail and he preached to the guards. He doesn't quit. That was the evidence. You know, here he doesn't deny what they have concluded. He just denies, why aren't you looking at the evidence? Now, he will deny it in chapter 12. But now he's just telling them, why aren't you looking at the, at the evidence? I mean, let's be realistic. The Apostle Paul's salvation was historical. There's no one else was ever saved the way Paul was saved. All right? And everybody knew about it. The lost knew about it. The saved knew about it. So he had evidence everywhere. We could call it a drastic life change. And it was there. There was power in his life. And you know what? The false don't want to look at the evidence. Okay? That was Paul's personal relationship to Christ. He's true. Second, impact on the church. Verse 8. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you, I will not be put to shame. Paul is amazing if you spend any time reading his letters on how humble he was. I don't know. I have had the privilege of meeting some phenomenal men of God. And one of the things that are all in line with all of them is their humility. Humility can't be faked. I, I, we, you know, I've had people come up and say, you know, I'm proud of my humility. And I'm like, oh, I'm happy for you. You know, but there, there's just things that I that I that I see and we have such a boastful society that humility is so odd that, that you're not really sure what you're what in the world is that Paul dwarfs 
everybody. He says, I can say more about what God has done. And even if I said more, I would never be put to shame. Okay? Because he says, my authority, which was always in question, it's questioned now. There are people saying, well, we don't know if Paul just added to a lot of things. Well, he was in the Arabian desert being taught by Christ for three years. He probably had a few other things. All right. But if you look at his impact on the church, he always strengthened it. Okay. Always. Whatever church he was in, he was strengthening it. He never was there to destroy the church. He was never there to cause schisms in the church. He was never. Now, listen, he confronted sin. Okay, now, you do that today, you get yourself in trouble. Because you're causing schisms in the church. Okay, but I know people who got saved, who say they are saved, and they don't even know what they were saved from. And and it's, whatever. He says that what I do in the church, I can never be ashamed of. And what I say, I can never be ashamed of. Why? Who's making him say it? Why? Look at the evidence he's saying. Why? The strengthening ministry that I have on the body of Christ is evidence of my impact on the church. Paul says, I can't overstate my case. But in his humility, he didn't like to speak of it. His life was all the evidence he needed. And he used it to what? Build up the church. You know what? It's amazing. You look at the letter to the Romans. He wrote Romans after he went back to Corinth the third time. And then he writes Romans. You know what's amazing? Paul had nothing and had done nothing in the church in Rome. He didn't found it. He hadn't been there to strengthen it. And he says, I want to come up and visit. And now you would think, if you think about it for a second, is there anybody better at building churches than the Apostle Paul? So why didn't he go to Rome, a big city, and start the second Baptist church? Okay? Why didn't he do that? He says, I want to come to that church and bear fruit with you. This is the Apostle Paul. Why didn't he start the second Roman church? No, I want to go where the saints are and strengthen the saints and bear fruit. Why? His impact on the church. This man's impact was that of salvation, sanctification, and spiritual strengthening. And you can go through any of his letters and see that that's what he's done. Which brings me to verse 9. For I do not wish his... To seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. He had a compassion for people. Listen, one of the things that I've noticed, and I've had a lot of dealings with false teachers in this town. They are absorbed in themselves. Okay, now that now they'll cloak that. But it doesn't usually take too long that... That rises through and you hear it. I mean, in just an idle conversation over a cup of coffee, you'll start hearing it. I have sat down with some of the greatest preachers that the world has ever seen. And they never say anything about themselves. And they all want to talk to me about what I'm doing. Okay. False. will always want to tell you what they're doing. Okay. 
Why? Um, I think they call it uh, selfishness. Now, they would accuse the Apostle Paul, as he says here in his terrifying letters, of being overbearing, which the false are. They are abusive, which the false are. And, and, and if I really watch it, they don't have any thought to the people because the people and the false shepherds is a means to an end. That's all it is. People are used and they use the people for their gain. But that's not Paul. I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. Listen, the false use every angle that they can. And they will tell you that that severe letter that we don't have would have been terrifying. Okay? I mean, I read 1 Corinthians and like, golly, how would you like to be sitting in church on a Sunday and have somebody read that and think, well, Paul's like really ticked, isn't he? Okay? Then to get a severe letter that we don't have and it was enough to move the congregation to repentance? That was a dandy and it had to be terrifying. But the false would say, well, he writes these mean-spirited letters because he's trying to manipulate you. He's trying to scare you. I remember talking to a pastor one time who was, uh, he handled the word, but... I'd heard him preach a message on you could lose your salvation and I had to confront him about it. And I said, I know you don't believe that. And he says, but you don't understand. It keeps the people motivated. Wait a minute. If you got to keep the people motivated, you got a bigger problem than trying to scare them. See, I watched the false do the things that they accused the Apostle Paul of. But they play good. All right? If you confront a person that what you're doing is sinful, okay? If you confront them, that is the most loving thing you can do. Because we were talking about this this morning. At your salvation, you have peace with God. Okay, in your sanctification, as you grow, you have the peace of God. If you fall into sin, you break the peace of God. Okay, now you're in torment. And that person ain't happy. You don't lose your salvation, but you're not having any fun. You point out the sin, you draw them back, and then the peace of God takes over the control of their lives again. And regardless of what's going on on planet Earth, they will have the peace of God. They said Paul was bad. He writes these mean-spirited letters to confront. And I know what he was confronting. I don't have the letter. I know what he was confronting. There was a mutiny going on in the church in Corinth. The people were leaving the true shepherd and were following the false shepherd. And he knew he had to stop that. The false are spiritually compassionate. They are tolerant. I remember talking to a pastor here in town. And we were talking about church discipline. He says, you can't do that anymore. I said, why not? And he says, you can't hurt people like that. But the Bible says I'm supposed to seek them out. You point it out. If they repent, then we're all happy. 
Why? The re- relationship is restored. That's what had happened to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, you see the relationship was seriously broken. And yet, through the severe letter, we see that that relationship was restored. Paul had to answer this because they were doing exactly what they were accusing the Apostle Paul of, of manipulation. He says, I don't want to terrify you by my letters. You know what? The confronting of sin is just a blast. We all line up to do it and say, yes, I'm going to just get out there and confront it all today. Okay, because I get people who come to me and says, well, I caught such and such in a sin and you need to go. I didn't catch him. You deal with it. Okay, I remember a young couple in this church years ago, his wife took off and was out and about and broke his heart. He called me and he had the kids and I said, all right. And he said, I don't know where she's at. So I went through town and there was a bar down on Main Street and I seen her car out front and I walked into the bar and sure enough. Got a single woman sitting in a bar. All the guys are more than cordial. And uh, so I tapped her on the shoulder. She turned around, and turned white. And at first it was kind of comical. <laughs> but I, I just said, hey, I just talked to your husband. I don't think this is legit. And so I took her home. I, I didn't even say nothing. I didn't really have to, <laughs> but you know it, it's 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 a serious issue, people. He says in chapter two, I wrote that severe letter with tears. I, I had anguish of my heart, but the letter was written to confront their sin. It was rebellion. They believed the false. There was a mutiny going on and it was large in the body. And they were turning from Paul. And when they turned from Paul, they were turning to the false. Someone had spoken evil on his surprise second visit. Nobody defended him. He was heartbroken. That's why he wrote the severe letter. He says he didn't want to terrify him. That word you see there, that I would terrify you by my letters, uh, it's, it's a cool word in the Greek. It's the word we get phobia from. Okay? But it's got an ek on the front of it, which intensifies it. So it moves from the word fear to terrifying. Okay? So that severe letter was a dandy. You know, we always think about what we're going to ask when we get to heaven, I'm going to say, you got a copy of that letter laying around here? <laughs> I'd like, like to read that because it was enough to terrify the congregation back to repentance. Okay? But they say that when you get that way, then you are ruling by fear. And that's not what the Apostle Paul was doing. I can go back and show you a number of verses here. Uh, I now rejoice, chapter 7, verse 9, I now rejoice that not that you were made sorrowful, now he's speaking of the severe letter, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. See, he wrote the letter to confront the sin to change their directions. And it had an effect. He, He... was not writing to scare them. He was writing to bring to repentance. Okay. Paul did not control by fear. 
He wanted him back in God's blessing. This man loved these Corinthians. He loved them deeply. Chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. Verse 23. But I call my witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. After he had had the confrontation, he didn't want to come back again. 24. Not that we lord over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. I don't like confrontation. I don't know any saint that likes confrontation. But there's certain times that you've just got to do it. He didn't want to come to again and have a horrible visit. 1 Corinthians 4, remember? I don't want to come with a rod. No one likes to do that. Paul didn't want to come and speak harshly to him. It's way, you know, it's way more fun to be gentle and compassionate. And it's a lot easier to be gentle and compassionate if there's obedience. But if there's disobedience, a little leavening spreads to what? The whole lump. I'm not coming because I'm afraid, but I don't want another confrontation. Verse 24, he says, why? Or, yeah, verse 24 of chapter 1. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For your joy. For in your faith, you are standing firm. We want your faith to grow. Chapter 2, verse 1. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. He didn't want to come back through that thing again. Verse 2. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? Okay, He was tied together with these people. And if they were sad and sorrowful and heartbroken, guess what Paul was? Sad and sorrowful and heartbroken. Listen, you know what? I, I look at men for, to be elders, and you can see that. You can see that in a person. Do they care for the flock? Or is it just something I'm supposed to be doing? The Apostle Paul did. Chapter 7 of this letter. Verses 5 and 6. We came to Macedonia. Our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without fears within. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Uh, that 5 and 6. What he's talking about is. I had a door for the gospel in Troas. But I was so depressed over what had happened in Corinth. That I couldn't preach. Now how depressed is the Apostle Paul if he can't preach? That's how heartbroken he he was. He had a door opened in Troas and he walked away from it. He wrote that severe letter, chapter 2, verse 4. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but you might know the love which I have, especially for you. You want to see a true servant of God, a true man of God. He is overwhelmed with his love for the people. That love is second to nothing. Chapter 3, verse 2, he says, 
speaking of the false who had these letters of commendation, he says this, You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Paul loved these people. These people were his passion. He would sacrifice everything, even his own life. And you know what? That's not true of the fakes, the frauds. Chapter 7, he says, make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Verse 2. We do not speak to condemn you. Okay? Why? Because the true servant of God has compassion for the people. He looks at him as God's people, as God's treasure. Writer of Hebrews chapter 10 says, you submit to the elders who have authority over you. Why? They must give an account for your souls. You're in our hearts to die together or to live together. The Apostle Paul loved these people. In chapter 11, we'll look at it deeper in a few weeks. But 11, 11, it says, Why? Because do I do, I do not love you? God knows that I do. Why does he love them? Chapter 12, verse 15. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? He loved them enough to give up his life. True men of God have a compassion. The true messenger of Christ has a care about the people that is deep, it's overwhelming, and can't be stopped. Then you've got to understand, these people broke his heart. Our common response is what? They're not saved. I'm out of here. That's how we do it, isn't it? And the Apostle Paul kept pulling on them. What's the matter with you? Look right in front of your nose. True men of God have compassion. They don't want it to be terrifying to the people. They don't try to manipulate the people. They don't try to jerk the people's chains. They don't try to abuse the people. They don't try to make them cower down. The true men of God has no joy in the pain of the people. They have pain with the people. If that person is grieving, the true servant of God is grieving with that person. Paul had no joy in their fear. Had no, the only joy he had was in their repentance. Why? That repentance restores them to God's gladness. What is more true of the false than a deep-seated selfishness and indifference? If there's nothing in it for me, I'm not interested. I have seen this time in and time out from men with massive, quote-unquote, ministries, and they are indifferent to the people. That's their character. I have seen so many, especially this day and age, in Castle Rock, Colorado, right now, there are many here who are here used to f- the people to fill their money coffers. That's all it's for. They build their empires. They build their kingdoms. 
but not the true teachers. The true teachers pour out their lives. It's for the people. So true teacher, have a compassion that he will pour his life out for the people that God has entrusted to his care. The true teacher has an impact on his church because he's pouring his life out for the people that God has given to his care. Because the true teacher is manifesting the relationship with Christ who poured his life out for the church. See how they all kind of go together? I, I pray for you all. I pray for this congregation every day. I pray for them by name. Um, as the shepherd, uh, I know many of your idiosyncrasies, as you know mine. Okay? Some of them you've tolerated longer than others. Okay? But I remember I, in 2004, I visited Israel. And I was sitting on the Sea of Galilee, beyond the east shore, probably where uh, the pigs were possessed by demons. <laughs> but it was across from Tiberias. And I remember and it was early in the morning. The, the sun was coming up in the east, and there's a big hillside behind me. And, and the, the sun was hitting on Tiberias, which is across the lake. And I remember I had uh, our directory. And, and my Bible, and I prayed for everybody. And I, and I, as I got done, I closed my directory, and I thought, uh, who would have thought I'd be sitting on the Sea of Galilee praying for Castle Rock Baptist Church? It freaked me out. And I didn't have a vision. A dove didn't come up or down or left or right. And it wasn't a cloud that's shaped like a cross or nothing like this. I hear all these people have these, well, I've seen a vision. I was like, I didn't. But, but I thought, you know what? What greater passion is there for your people than to pray for them? You ever thought about that? I, that's just amazing to me. And yet, if you think about it, Prayer must be extraordinarily powerful because it's so hard to do. I mean, think about what keeps you from praying. Listen, I'm glad we don't have a big church. Because I can pray for every one of you by name every day. If we had a hundred people, oh gee, I'd have to get up earlier. Okay? And that's the kind of thing. I look at the Apostle Paul and I think, what a man of God. Because these people were boneheads. And yet he never relented drawing them back. Here in Castle Rock, if someone gets mad at me, we got 50, I think we're 56 evangelical churches. You can go to a different church every day or every Sunday. Okay, and you'll hear all kinds of cool stuff. I'm sure of it. But I see a lot of indifference in the body of Christ. And we've got to be weary of that. It should scare us. Because it's easy to do. None of you have ever dealt with complacency, I know. But if you ever do, understand its danger. 
And when I think about the true man of God is known by his relationship to Christ, his impact on his church, and his compassion for the people, that should stand out to every one of us because you can't hide that. You can't hide that. Next week, we will see that the true man of God is known by his disdain for fleshly methods. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. I thank you for my brother Paul. And Father, I praise you that you have given me the time you have to spend with Paul. I almost feel like he's my best friend. Lord, I lift up your bride to you. Father, first and foremost, I pray that you will uh, give her discernment. Father, I pray that we who are called by your name will look at this and ask ourselves the tough questions. What is my relationship with Christ? What is my impact in the church? And what is my compassion for the people of God? Help us, Lord. Strange times. And yet, Father, you are faithful. You are sovereign. Praise you for your word. Praise you for your precious bride, your church. Father, may we, every one of us, walk worthy of this calling. To your praise and glory. Amen.